0: Well, having just said that prayer, I probably shouldn't even mention this, but it is Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) And uh, uh, it's interesting because for the second year in a row now, the Super Bowl is being played in the home stadium of one of the teams that's in the game. The Los Angeles Rams. By the way, I went to college with the general manager of the Los Angeles Rams. We played intramural football together. He was much bigger and much stronger, and uh, it's probably a name drop. But his name is Les Snead, and he's a great guy. And so I'm pulling for that team. But they're playing in their home stadium. Last year, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers played in their home stadium, and this is kind of bad for the NFL. They're like, no, we can't let this happen anymore. So this week. They made a major announcement, I don't know if you saw the news, but the NFL made a major announcement that from now on, they will assure that the Super Bowl will not be played in the home stadium of the Super Bowl team. And so, they made the announcement this week that from now on, every Super Bowl will be played at AT AT&T Stadium in Dallas, Texas uh, (laughs) for uh, the… Now, that's hard for me to say because I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, but this year… As in the last 30 years, we were severely disappointed. So, we're in the middle of this doctrinal series, and it's a great series. Thank you, Pastor Jonathan, for leading us through this series. And thank you, Pastor Jonathan, for allowing me this morning to talk to you on the doctrine of the Bible. What an amazing book it is, And I was trying to think how could I approach this uh, to where we kind of gain a little understanding for why we need the Bible in our lives? And so I thought I would just talk uh, to you first of all about just general revelation. You see, we're born, all of us, with this need in our lives. we're born with two conditions: we're born lost, an emptiness in our soul, and we can't do anything to fill that emptiness, but we're also born with this innate desire to fill it. So you're born lost and looking for a way to fill an emptiness in your soul, and yet you're also born with this incredible desire to fill it. And so, as Paul explains in Romans chapter one, we'll do anything and everything to try to fill this void in our lives. Well, believe it or not, the void was placed there by God himself. And so through the process of two major, um, major, flashing billboards, for lack of a better phrase, uh, God has shown us that He really does exist by way of what we call general revelation. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 2. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul explains to us that, that God Himself, by way of nature, has shown mankind that He really does exist. The trees, the mountains, the forests, the lakes, the oceans, all of what you see in nature is a telltale sign that God is, there is a great creator out there who has massively pulled all this together. Didn't happen by just some explosion because that really defutes the law of thermodynamics, doesn't it? Chaos, uh, order doesn't come from chaos. There has to be some sort of order to this, and and there is a creator, and that's the point that Paul's making in Romans chapter 1. The problem is, is that mankind, because we have this incessant need to fill this void in our lives, we try whatever we can to fill it, and through the process of it, because we have a selfish nature, we get things all messed up. And so rather than worshiping the creator who created us, we end up worshiping his creation. Or we can come up with all kinds of things to fill that void. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1, no, you have this void there, but one telltale sign that there is a God who really exists is by looking at the wonder and the order of creation. But there's another sign that exists in all of us, that's available to all of us, that is a sign that there really is a God. In Romans chapter 2, Paul tells the Roman Christians, hey, another sign that you know there's a God is that you have a conscience. So we have creation and we have a conscience. Both of those are general revelations from God telling us, hey, I do exist. You can go to the very farthest hut in the most rural area of some country in the desert somewhere and you'll find a tribe of people who may look very primitive. They may not have a lot of education. They may not even have electricity or running water. But in that little hut, if I was to go in and kill one of their mamas, they would know that something ain't right about that. Why? Because God has born in all of us a general sense of right and wrong, a consciousness. So we have creation and we have a conscience that lets us know there is a God. But you know what? God doesn't just want us to know that he exists. He wants us to know him. And so even though he gave us general revelation that he is alive and well and creator and God, he also gave us special revelation through the power of his word. The Bible, what an amazing special revelation from God. Written by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages 19 different professions that the authors came from, some farmers, some priests, some peasants, some kings, shepherds, you name it. All kinds of different areas that these people came from, and yet it happened over a period of 1,500 years that these authors were inspired by God to write these words from God to illuminate for us the truth of his word. So the Bible comes to us by way of three different things: revelation, inspiration, and illumination. By the way, if you have your start book, you'll see those three words. We're at page 95 of the start work, the, the start book that you were all given a couple of weeks back uh, as we began this series. You can find these words prevalent in those little pages right there where uh, Dr. Wilmington, who's the, basically the one who's behind that start book, uh, tells us that this is how we got our scriptures, by revelation, inspiration, and illumination. And sometimes it's kind of hard to grasp what that means, so I thought I'd just give you this little illustration to sort of help you uh, kind of grasp what that is. Let's just say, for instance, that I'm a doctor. And not just a doctor, a really brilliant doctor. Now we're really pushing it, right? <laughs> so, so I'm this brilliant doctor, but I'm not just a brilliant doctor. I am so brilliant that I come up with a cure for cancer. Now, if I was a doctor who came up with a cure for cancer, now what, now what I need to do is tell somebody right so i would pull together four, let's just say i pull together 40 friends from around the world and i say okay now look here's what i'm going to reveal to you i'm going to reveal to you not only that i have the cure for cancer but how you can receive the cure for cancer and i need you to write this down because as you write this down i'm going to ask you to put it in an email and send it all over the world to explain to other friends and family members how they can receive a cure for cancer now, what's happened there is three things. I revealed to 40 friends that I've got the cure for cancer, right? So I'm telling them that and then asking them to now, in, through inspiration of this new information, write it down. And then illuminate this information into the hearts and minds of their friends so that they can also know the truth that I've got a cure for cancer. That's exactly how the Bible comes to us. By revelation, from God to man, into their hearts, and then from man to paper, by inspiration to write it down, and then from paper into the hearts and the minds of people like you and me who read the truths of the Scripture. So the Scriptures come to us by those three ways, revelation, inspiration, and illumination. And so as believers, we really need to consider the fact that we need to do three things with this Bible. First of all, we need to read it. Second of all, we need to believe it. And thirdly, we need to apply it. By the way, that's the three points of the sermon, okay? close your Bibles, we're done. Just kidding. All right, so let's go into point number one. Read it. What am I reading? Well, I just explained to you how it's 40 different authors who came together and over the course of 1,500 years were inspired by God. By the way, the base scripture for this entire message you'll find in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. But if I was to give you a second verse for this message, it would be Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active. And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, what happens is when you begin to read this Bible, you begin to discover that it really is alive. This is not just a dead book written hundreds of years ago. No, this thing is alive. And every time you open it, the Lord just kind of illuminates a new truth to you. You can read the same parable of Jesus 50 times and every time it'll speak to you in a little different way. Why? Because it is living and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword in the sense that it penetrates your heart just right where you need surgery from the Lord that day in your heart and in your mind. So what are you reading? Well, ultimately, it's a how-to book. If this was part of the Dummies series, it'd be Living for Dummies. This is a how-to-live book. This is your basis for it, right? But it's not just that. It's also a history book. It's a geographical book. It's a genealogical book. It tells the entire history of the race of the Jewish people. And yes, they really are a race. Not just a race, God's chosen race, by the way. But it's a textbook. It's a book of wisdom. It's a book of philosophy, it's a science book, it's an archeological book, all of it in this one little book right here, all of that is contained. And it's, and it's, and it's written in different ways, like poetry, prose, uh, principles, wisdom literatures, little, little proverbs like Solomon writes in, the, in Proverbs and, the, and then there's parables like Jesus told, and of course it's chock full of promises from God, but you know what if I was to have to say one phrase on what the Bible is, I would have to tell you this, well before I tell you it's Valentine's weekend, you know that right, so tomorrow's Valentine's, men, tomorrow's Valentine's okay, just a big reminder do something, anything just something All right, but here's the suggestion. You could write a love letter to your spouse or to your loved one, ladies, men. It's just a thought, it's just a thought. Do you remember the first love letter you ever got? I remember my first love letter, sixth grade. Her name was Carrie. She was in seventh grade, so that was kind of a big deal. (laughs) Yeah, Carrie Jackson was her name, I hope she's not watching. But uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a weird little deal. It came in the form of like this origami thing. It had all these folds and everything. It took me like 20 minutes to get it open. And then all the dotted eyes were little circles. They weren't dots, they were circles, you know, this little thing. But you can tell, you can tell always in junior high, you know a girl wrote this because they have this certain rounded little thing they do with their letters, right? And I had this letter and it said Charles on the, and I thought, Ooh, she knows my name. And it came in two forms. The first form just said simply this. Do you like me? Check yes or no. (laughs) I checked yes. Then I got another letter, and it went into great detail on how she thought I was cute and stuff. And I took that letter home, and I read it over and over and over again. Memorized it. Every little phrase I I reread to make sure, okay, I wonder what she means here. I loved it. I fell in love with her love letter. That's exactly what this is, folks. The Bible is God's love letter to you. Every book, every chapter screams, I love you. I love you. So it's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, forming 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,173 verses, 773,692 words, and 3,567,180 letters. That's totally useless information, but I had it written down here and I thought it was kind of cool. So we read it, but how did these 66 books come, like how did those books become the Bible? Well, it was done through a process called canonization. And, and to explain the process of canonization in 30 seconds is really difficult to do. But suffice it to say, and you can study all you want to, and this is actually mentioned briefly in our, in our start book as well, but the old testament was pretty cut and dry by 300 bc the canon of the old testament had been determined and canon basically means the measuring stick what we what what is the measuring stick for what is actually scripture but the 27 books in the New Testament, that process took a little longer because these, some of them were letters of Paul and other things, and they, they floated around Europe and Asia for a while until they sort of made their way to Jerusalem and, and through several over, councils over several years, uh, great church fathers and apostles and priests and everybody else finally came to the conclusion that the anointed Word of God was in these 27 books of the New Testament. Now, there's other writings. In fact, uh, some religions uh, recognize it these writings. Uh, you might know it as the Apocrypha, 14 different books that came about during the, what we call the trans, um, the trans-testamental period, that 400 years of silence when, when, uh, the, when Malachi ends and before Matthew begins. There's 400 years there that, that transpired. And, and 14 books came out during that period known as the Apocrypha. But the reason we don't recognize the Apocrypha is because there's many discrepancies that actually contradict the rest of Scripture. And there's a lot of other reasons too. But we don't recognize the Apocrypha as part of actual inspired scripture. But the books we do recognize, these 66, had a five step process by which all the church fathers used to determine whether or not they made the grade, so to speak, as inspired scripture. One was authorship. They would ask the question who wrote this book? The second question they would ask is, uh, is there a community acceptance of the local church? Is it changing lives, basically? Uh, The church fathers, uh, did they recognize it? That was the third criteria. Uh, Had the the direct students of the the apostles read it? Had the apostles themselves studied it? Or did it come directly from words that were passed down from the apostles? And then uh, the fourth thing was subject matter content. What did the book actually teach? And then the fifth criteria was personal edification. Does does this book inspire? Does it convict? Does it teach? Does it edify? And here's the thing. If all of those books didn't meet all five of those criteria, then they weren't made. They weren't put in the scriptures. They weren't recognized as inspired word of God. They had to meet all five of those criteria. And these 66 books are the only ones that did. So, So we read these 66 books not as just 66 separate books that were authorized by people, but no, these are authorized by the Word of God breathed out from Him, inspired through just normal people like you and me so that you and I could read them and let God speak to us through them. So why read it? Well, for the same three words I gave you earlier, for the sake of revelation, for the sake of inspiration, for the sake of God illuminating your mind and your heart to what His deeper truths are. And so I would encourage you to read it and to study it and to meditate on it. In fact, Psalm chapter 119, verse 11, David says these words, I've stored up your word of my heart that I might not sin against you. Read it, study it, chew on it, meditate on it. And by the way, if you want to learn more, go across campus and go right over there to that Rawlings Scriptorium at the front, at the bottom level of the, of the School of Divinity. You want to see some amazing stuff that's actual real artifacts of history and learn about the history of the Bible, go over there and spend some time in that room. It's amazing. It really is amazing. Every Monday through Friday from 9 to 4, they're open. I would highly encourage you, take your family over there and walk through there. You will see some of the most amazing artifacts and they're all real and it's right here underneath our own roof so cool By the way, we have so many other people here that gives us great resources too. Like Elmer Towns has been around here preaching for 71 years. There's a book by Harold Wilmington who just passed away last year uh, known as The Manuscript from Outer Space. That book was a treasure trove of information for this message. But so many people like Dr. Hines and Dr. Habermas, all these people that are right under our roofs that are world-leading Bible scholars that we have the privilege of sitting under and reading from that are right here in this town so it's pretty cool and honestly we have no excuse do we we got every resource known to man with Google and the internet and everything else to find out more about his scriptures so here's what I gotta tell you just read it open it up and read it it'll change your life but let me tell you another thing to do believe it we can read it but do we believe it and I know there's some weird places sometimes that are hard to believe, some, some strange areas, and, and, you know, and, 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 and some of it really is kind of bothersome to read some of these stories in the Old Testament. <laughs> but uh, I like what Mark Twain said. He said, you know, most people are bothered by parts of Scripture that they don't understand. The parts that bother me are the parts that I do understand, right? Because when you read something like loving your enemies, that's, that's bothersome because now I got to try to apply that, right? But just because there's parts of this book that may cause us to question, it doesn't mean that it's not believable. Or could it be that one day we will understand more fully if we just continue to trust the Lord? Absolutely. I can't wait to get to heaven one day and ask the Lord why Elisha sent that bear to kill those kids. I just wanna know what on earth was going on there, right? And I got a lot of questions I wanna ask the Lord, but here's the thing, if I don't believe in him, I'm not gonna have the chance to ask him right? So we believe the Bible, and I'll give you several reasons why. First of all, because of its unity. This Bible, even though it came from 1,500 different years and 40 40 different authors and three different continents and three different languages, somehow it has one amazing cohesive message. It's amazing how all the prophecies of the Old Testament about Christ absolutely came true, 100% of them. And the chances of that happening are actually 1 in 10 to the 27th power. That's a, a 1 with 27 zeros behind it. I've given you that illustration before, but the fact that Jesus fulfilled every prophecy about Him in the Old Testament, and He did it as one human being, is, is a miracle. And, and you think about all the prophecies that are told here about the Bible and about Jesus and about empires rising and falling and famines that are to come and all kinds of stuff like that, to think that all of it has come true, and the only parts that haven't come true yet is because we haven't lived long enough. But I mean, even the Bible tells us that the Euphrates River is going to dry up. And guess what? I just read it this morning. In two decades, the Euphrates River will be totally dry. The Bible tells us that hundreds of years ago. How cool is that? So the Bible is not only unified, it's accurate. Let me give you several ways. First of all, historically. I mean, look at what's so fun about watching archaeological digs and things like this and reading history is that the longer we live and the more things we dig up, the more the Bible proves itself true. The digs of Jericho, the the book of Acts, all those places, they really did exist. The flood the, the, the flood that destroyed the world. There's great evidence for a massive flood. Uh, even, even evidence archaeologically for a great awakening that happened in the ancient city of Nineveh. Hello, the book of Jonah. And on and on and on it goes. It's just mounds and mounds and mountains and mountains of biblical, biblical words that have been proven true by history and archaeological studies. But the Bible is also accurate scientifically. Now, this is just amazing to me because so much science has been proved that's mentioned in the Bible. Everything from the law of thermodynamics to uh, the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, diffusing the, eye of spontaneous, the idea of spontaneous generation. You know what that is, right? That means that you believe that living organisms can, can form from non-living matter. That idea was brought forth by by Aristotle and then it took till 1872 for a guy named Louis Pasteur to disprove that. Well, the Bible disproves it and says it's not true in Genesis chapter 1. It only just took us 7,000 years to actually believe it. Hello, we're kind of slow learners here. The idea of transgenderism is covered pretty clearly in Genesis chapter 6, verse 19. The events of things like ocean currents. It's all right there. In fact, one really cool story, there was a man by the name of Matthew Morey who, who, was, who was studying the ocean. And his, his passion was, he, he just really believed that somehow there were currents in the ocean because some parts of the ocean flowed faster than the other. But he couldn't, he couldn't find them. He couldn't figure out where these pathways were. And one day he's sick and he's laying in his in his bed and he calls his son over to just have him read some scripture to him to encourage his heart which by the way is another thing that the bible does that encourages our heart and, he's read, and his son is reading scripture from Psalm chapter 8, and, he, and he's reading that wonderful passage that David wrote that says, who am I that you are mindful of me? And he starts talking about all the wonders of nature. And then he gets to verse 8. And he says this, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And then he just keeps reading. And, and Mr. Morey grabbed the arm of his son. He said, wait, 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 go back, go back, read that again. And his son said, well, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And Maury stopped his son and he said, you know what? That's enough. If the Word of God says there's paths in the sea, then they must be there. And I'm going to find them. And over the course of the next couple years, (laughs) through his studies, Matthew Morey discovered the currents and the pathways of the sea to which ocean liners and ships still use to this day. Come on. And it's right there in Psalm chapter eight, written in 800 BC. And here he is in 1840. And God is using the word of God to help the scientists discover the currents of the ocean. (laughs) I just think that's so cool. But there's so much more. And the Bible also, we should believe it because of its resiliency. Multiple times throughout history, there's been attempts to destroy the Bible. Every one of them have failed. You can go to Diocletian, the emperor of Rome, who tried to destroy every scripture. That, and, and by the way, it was in 303 AD, so we know then that there was some sort of canonization that had happened by then anyway, because by 303 AD, Diocletian's trying to destroy the Bible. And he thought he had done it, even built a monument on where he burned the last of the scriptures. And then just 20 years later, Constantine, who was a Christian, asked if anybody happened to have a copy of the scriptures. And within 24 hours, he had 50 copies. <laughs> How cool was that? But others like Pope Innocent III, Pope Innocent III in 1099, tried to destroy every word of scripture. Why? Because if the people get to read it, that destroys his power. He's a pope for crying out loud and doesn't want the people to know the Bible. Sounds crazy to us in this day and age, but that's the way it was back then. All the way up to people like Thomas Paine in America and Robert Ingersoll. They've all tried their best to destroy the Bible. One of my favorite stories is Voltaire, French philosopher. He, he made this arrogant statement in 1776. He said, 100 years from day from this day, there will not be a Bible on earth except the one that is looked at in some museum someplace. He made that statement, and ironically, within 50 years of his death, his very house where he wrote those words was a storehouse for Bibles and Gospel tracts for the Evangelical Society of Geneva. (laughs) And the printing press that he used to print his ilk and his anti-Christian rhetoric was used to print Bibles. Today, the Bible is still read by millions. In fact, 100 million Bibles a year are sold on average, while very few people have any idea what Voltaire had to say nor do we care. So you can read the works of philosophers like Marcus Aurelius or Plato or Socrates or Descartes or Nietzsche, or you just take your pick. And you can take books like, like uh, you know, that these people have written, or you can consider the lifestyles of the Gnostics or the Epicureans, and you can look at other religions like, like Islam or Mormonism or Scientology or Jehovah's Witness. But none of these works, none of these religions, none of these books, none of these philosophers, none of those prophets have the power within the world of this book right here to change your life and to save your soul? None of them. Only this book. So have you considered the power of this book? Have you considered the fact that it can change your life? I would encourage you strongly to believe it, read it, but lastly, apply it. The proof of belief is to be found in action. Those are words of Jordan Peterson in a recent interview. I love watching this this pathway that Jordan Peterson is on. He's a well-known philosopher, psychologist, but he used to just completely not believe there's a God, and now you're just watching him as he's slowly becoming a believer. And he said those words, the proof of belief is to be found in action. You know, to claim we believe the Bible and to believe in God and to believe that Jesus has saved us means that we speak the truth, we proclaim the truth, but it also means that we live out the truth. It's a dangerous thing to say we believe in something and yet we don't act it out. When we do that, it's an empty claim. The truth is most of us say we believe but only about 60 to 70% of what we say we believe is what we actually live out. So in a sense, we're, we're mismanaging our beliefs. And if we are mismanaging our beliefs, I guess it sort of begs the question, do we really believe it at all? I mean, is what we say we believe truly the deep and life-changing conviction of our heart? For most of us, it's not. For most of us, to really be a Christian is kind of a casual part-time deal, right? So we embrace the easy stuff. Come to church once a week. Give a little tip of money to the Lord. Enjoy some good music. Those things are pretty easy. But God has called us to something a little bit more difficult. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow Him. We're told to love our enemies. We're told to give all that we have to the poor and the needy. Take care of the widows and orphans. Spend time with the lowly in our society. Choose to live by faith and not by sight. We're told to walk the extra mile when you've already walked what seems like endless amounts of miles. We're told to turn the other cheek when someone strikes a blow to you. We're told to forgive others who really seem unforgivable. We're told to allow God to break us through the bad times. And none of this is easy, yet it's entirely necessary if we're really going to apply what we say we believe. Imagine how different our lives would be if we really truly were doers of the word and not hearers only. I've been so convicted this week over this. Because there are areas of my life that I've said I believe, I believe, I believe, and yet I'm about 70% there. And if I'm 70% there, do I really believe it? D.L. Moody said, the world has yet to see what God can do through one who is fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. But you see, there's an element to all of this that I haven't mentioned yet, and this is how we'll close. It's the element of faith. In order to really believe the Bible and apply the Bible requires faith. Because you see, we're talking about a God you you can't see. We're talking about a Savior who we've never seen His nail-scarred hands. But when you think about it, we exercise faith in everything we do. You put faith in your car to get you to this church today. You put faith in the seat that you're sitting on that it's going to hold you up. It's like the wind. You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind, and yet you believe it's wind. That's the illustration that Jesus gave in John chapter 3. So in order to really apply and believe this requires one big step of faith because faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. It requires that we place our faith in him. But I'm gonna tell you right now, when you do, your life is changed forever. And you will live a life that is daily sweetened and made more assured because of the power of his word if you just spend time in it. So there's this war going on within our souls. And the only way to win that war is a daily and complete surrender to the one who holds our souls in his hands. And it just so happens the one who holds you in his hands is also the one who wrote this book. So if we say we believe it, then the one true sign that we do is our daily application of it. There was a man by the name of Robert Wilson I've been inspired this week by his story because he was a graduate of Princeton in 1876 and he got his PhD in Old Testament and he spent 45 years of his life in deep study of the Old Testament and then teaching it. And through the years, his life just became this living picture and example of what Jesus can do in and through one particular life. And he was a massive blessing to thousands of students. But in one particular class, at the end of his class, in a passionate speech on the trustworthiness of scripture this distinguished old professor who'd spent his life teaching this book he said with tears in his eyes young people there are many mysteries in this life I do not pretend to understand many things that are hard to explain but I can tell you this morning with the fullest assurance in my heart that Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so can I just tell you something as we close today The reason that story means a lot to me is because it was 45 years ago. I got saved when I was six years old. I'm 52. So it was almost a little over 45 years ago now that, um, that I've known the Lord. And I've had good days and I've had bad. And I've had victories and I've had valleys. I've had days when I really believed and days when I really questioned. I've had sin in my life. I've had days when I was close to Him everything in between fought diseases fought battles fought relational problems just like you have but i can tell you after 45 years of walking with the lord as best i know how i can honestly say jesus loves me this i know because this bible tells me so and i can tell you jesus loves you this i know because the Bible tells you so. So will you read it? Will you study it? Will you ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate in your heart and your mind the goodness and the riches from which this book contains? And will you apply it? Because I promise you if you do, your life will be changed forever. There's an old chorus that we sang when I was a kid. We used to sing it, and I thought, you know, maybe that'd be the best way to close this service, for us just to quietly stand together and go back to those nursery days when some of you were growing up in church. You sang this song with me. But as we sing it, I just want you to know the altar here is open. I want you to open your heart and your mind and your ears to what the Lord has for you, and just ask the Lord. Ask Him to help you through the scriptures become the person He wants you to be. But if there's an emptiness in your soul, like I talked about at the very beginning of this message, then why don't you come down and by a step of faith, surrender your heart to Christ. If you do that, this word will take on a whole new meaning. A whole new meaning. You remember this? Jesus loves me,
1: this I know for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are
0: So read it, believe it, apply it as you go today. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. And don't forget, write that love letter to your loved one. They'll cherish it forever. God bless you guys. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad
1: you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We wanna help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more,
0: we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us
1: help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.